0: Well, this morning we are starting a second half of the summer sermon series called Summer in the Psalms or, or just a Psalms summer sermon series. And this isn't anything new. Uh, I went back and looked in my, my files. I know I've preached through some parts of the Psalms over the years in the summer, but it actually goes back almost nine or ten years when we did this the first time. And, uh, really the rationale is, is twofold. One, my goal is always to Give us and myself a good diet from God's word. So we spend some time in the New Testament, some time in the Old Testament, some time in Revelation, like we did and just finished a few weeks ago. And then some time, you know, in other parts. And, and the Psalms are great. We'll, I hope we all believe that. And maybe even uh, we'll believe that more this morning. Uh, but, but that's one rationale. The other is there's lots of, Ebb and flow of people coming and going in the summer, vacations and trips. And so, uh, this way, these, these messages act as kind of standalone sermons. So you don't have to feel like, Oh, I've been gone and where are we at? And that series, that, you know, letter to the church of Revelation, which one? Um, they're, they're standalone in that regard. And so, um, the plan, Lord willing, what, what I've mapped out and what I think God wants for us as a church is to spend the next six, seven weeks in the Psalms and then uh, in about the middle of September right around the time of Soma's 15th 15 years as a church our birthday anniversary um and I will be 50 at that point so I think I'll be old enough to open the book of Romans uh for for us for some time so that's coming lord willing in in the fall uh so we are going to get to Psalm 1 in a few moments but let me let me just kind of give us some context a little bit a little background on the Psalms before we get to Psalm chapter one. The Psalms, again, should be very familiar to many of us. And it's uh, a type of literature that is actually very specific. It's poetry. It's, it's Hebrew poetry. In fact, most scholars tell us that all of the Psalms were meant to be sung. So we're going to sing every week. No, we're not going to do that. Um, you're not going to hear me leading any singing. Uh, although there are some great Songs that are musical melodies that have been put to various psalms, but we, we won't do that. But we got to keep that in mind. They're poetry. They, they were musical poetry. In fact, uh, in the original Hebrew, the title of the book is the Tehalim. And that Hebrew word means praises. They, they are a collection of Hebrew prayers, praises, hymns, Again, to be sung. Um, I've always struggled with poetry uh, in school. Um, You know, the simple rhyme ones were about all I could stomach. I'm trying to grow in that. I I bought actually uh, a book of uh, poetry related to um, Easter this last year to try to read and expand my mind. But I do like the Psalms uh, in terms of poetry. Um, Some of my most favorite passages that I quote and that I share and that I pray come from the Psalms. And for me, that began uh, back in like the early 90s. When would that have been? A long time ago. With almost 30, more than 30 years ago as a freshman at Bible college deciding to read through the Psalms and um, and they have come alive. In fact, I, I was on vacation a couple of weeks ago when Adam Wilson preached out of Psalm 4, but Psalm chapter 4, verse 8, my kids know it by heart because almost every night at Bedtime, when I would pray with them, and I still do. I pray that they would, in peace, both lie down and sleep. For you alone, Lord, make us dwell in safety. That that prayer of Psalm four, verse eight, became a prayer of mine in college when I had a roommate that struggled with some mental illness and and just it was hard to sleep uh, in my room in my dorm. And so I I read that and just thought I gotta memorize that. I gotta believe this. Um, let's talk about some observations uh, surrounding uh, the Psalms. Let me just read this. Um, As noted, Psalms are musical poetry. And we have to remember this. Um, As musical poetry, they are words spoken to God or words spoken about God. And yet, it's in the Bible. And so, these words, too, are God's words. So, it's kind of confounding. There are prayers to God, about God. Yet yeah, because they're in God's word, right? They're God's word. And so they teach us some things and they tell us some things. Uh, and we just have to understand that at the one level, the, the beauty of that, um, the, these are prayers um, addressed to God, but they express truth about God. Uh, one of the books I'm going to quote throughout this morning, uh, it's a great book, um, and I encourage you, in fact, um, you could uh, pick this book up. Um, it's called How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth by Fian Stewart, um, and, and so they write this, the Psalms are profitable when used for the purposes intended by God, who inspired them by helping us to express ourselves to God and to consider his ways the Psalms, therefore, are of great benefit for the believer who looks to the Bible for help in expressing joys and sorrows, successes and failures, hopes and regrets. So again, to walk through just three quick points, you can memorize these. I think it's pretty straightforward. They're musical poems, hymns, prayers that were meant to be sung. We'll read them. Number two, Hebrew poetry, Fian Stewart. Help us. It's it's intentionally emotive. That is, it, it's addressed to the mind, but through the heart, and so they're they're meant to be emotive. And then finally, the vocabulary of poetry is purposely metaphorical. And so, even in Psalm one today, we're going to encounter some similes and some parallelism and all those things that some of you are fresh in your thinking because you're in school and you're learning poetry and maybe some of you haven't thought about that in years, we, we will encounter these items along the way. Musical poetry that's highly and intentionally emotive and purposely metaphorical. Now, many of the Psalms are straightforward and easy. Most of us know Psalm 23. We, we've heard it a lot. It's in movies and everything. Uh, that, that is pretty straightforward. The Lord is my shepherd and we, we can understand the intent and the meaning, but other Psalms are not quite so easy to understand. So that's the the cover of the book uh, that I mentioned that I'll quote from, Fee and Stewart, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. Great resource to put on your shelf. This will help you do some hermeneutics, how to interpret the Bible. Uh, And so let me read a lengthy quote. I've put it on the screen for you to follow as I read. So again, on the one hand, you have something easy like Psalm 23, but there are others. For example, how is one to use a psalm that seems to be negative throughout Psalm 88 and seems to express the misery of the speaker? What do we do with that? Is it something that we should use in a church service or just for private use only? They go on. What of a psalm that tells about the history of Israel and God's blessings on Israel Can we as an American church, American Christians, can we make good use of those sorts of psalms? Or is it reserved only for for God's people, the Jews? Or how about psalms that predict the work of the Messiah, the Messianic psalms? Or, Or what of psalms that laud the benefits of wisdom? What about the several psalms that discuss the glory of Israel's human kings? Since very few people in the world now live under royalty, it would seem especially difficult to make sense of this latter sort of psalm. All of that is simply to say, on the one hand, these are musical prayers, right, meant to be sung, but you encounter these different ones that make it a little tricky. And and, and so we're not going to see all of this stuff in our six weeks or so, but I want to encourage you to, to... Make the Psalms a part of your time alone with God. Maybe if you're doing something else regularly right now, add a Psalm reading at your mealtime in the evening. Uh, if, If you have others in your home, make that just be part of what you do around the table or maybe read the Psalms before you turn in for the night, but, but, oh, to add the Psalms into your, your regular rhythm would be good, but you'll encounter some of these types and they can be challenging. Um, In fact, one of the hardest ones is Psalm 137. This is a psalm written when God's people had been taken exile to Babylon. King Nebuchadnezzar had come in, destroyed everything, and took the captives away. And these next two verses that you'll see on the screen uh, conclude this psalm. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. When was the last time we heard that one as a call to worship? (laughs) Right? So so let's just pause on that a second. That's in the Bible. Hebrew poetry, emotive and, and honest and so... God's people penned this song. They were angry at their enemies. And it was this honest song to God. This isn't telling us how to live, (laughs) what to do, other than giving us an okay to lament. And we'll talk about that in a second, but it's one thing to be honest to God as we see in the Psalms about things. God's not afraid of our honesty, as Christian singer Margaret Becker sang a long time ago, one of my favorite songs when I was a young Christian. And it's a great truth. God is not afraid of our honesty. So, so Psalms, even like this, what do we do with it? I'm not going to answer that today. Uh, you can talk to Jim Thaler uh, on the way out. <laughs> but, but you will encounter some difficult things along the way. But they are, first and foremost, honest musical poetry, highly and intentionally emotive, purposely metaphorical. And we have to do our work to interpret. Uh, again, a few more things to note. Um, 150 chapters, if you're looking, it's the biggest book in your Bible, pretty much right in the middle. You can almost just open right up to the middle and you'll get to the Psalms. Um, those 150 chapters are divided actually into five books. Uh, and, uh, probably the idea with the editors who did that, they had the Pentateuch in mind, the first five books of Moses. So let's group these Psalms into five books, um, the present collection like we have, really it was done around the time of, of when the exiles came back. And so Jesus, he would have had this when he was alive. This would have been his Psalter. That's another way of talking about the collection of Psalms, the Psalter. And so it's, it's grouped in this way, five different books. Uh, and again, there's more we could say about that. Finally, um, the Psalms are grouped into what's called genre, just like there's different genres of movie, um, there's comedies and action and drama and rom-coms, right? And, and so you don't watch, you know, an action Vin Diesel movie expecting, you know, it to be this dramatic, real-life, you know, heart-wrenching story, okay? You might cry for other reasons in that kind of a movie, but, but you kind of know going into movies what to expect. Or if you don't, you realize along the way. And, and so even the Psalms are, are different. Um, genre, it's just a fancy word for different types of categories. So let me just talk through these different types very briefly here. Um, lament, I already mentioned lament. This is the largest group of psalms. By far, uh, the largest number of um, type that you find is, is this type of uh, lament. Um, in fact, more than 60 And some of those are individual, like singular, one person lamenting to God. Um, And other times uh, they're they're, um, corporate. That is like as a group, God's people are lamenting. Um, What what exactly is a lament? What what should we understand about that? The idea is is like this. Either individual or corporate, they express a deep trust in God and um, help for a person in struggle, suffering, and even disappointment with God and with life. Uh, one writer says this, this kind of complaint is not like the grumbling and complaining that Israel did in the wilderness, right? God's people complained and grumbled to Moses all the time. And we read about that in, in the Old Testament. Laments are not like that, this writer says correctly. These laments, these are complaints against God. Sorry, those there, the, the kind in the wilderness, excuse me. Those are complaints against God while speaking to each other with bad attitude. In lament, the psalmist complains of their situation. And though freely expressing disappointment with God, ultimately they're turning to God and not away. We need to understand that. There's one thing to complain and grumble and talk to others. It's quite another in honest prayer to complain and be honest to God. He's not afraid of our honesty. So we have lament, a lot of them. Number two, there are thanksgiving psalms. And as the name suggests, in circumstances very opposite from lament, there are places to just give thanks uh, to God for. The circumstances for people, for his faithfulness, his benefit, his protection, and so on. And then there are lots of even subgroups beyond uh, or within uh, Thanksgiving psalms. Then we have hymns of praise. Um, These psalms, without a reference to a personal situation, um, are centered on just praising God for who he is, for his greatness, for his uh, care for the whole earth, his people, as creator, uh, protector, and on and on and goes. Um, these can be adapted for individual use. Um, so far, which of these do you think we use mostly in our calls to worship? <laughs> Number three. Yes, uh, you're, 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 you're tracking with me. Number four, there are um, types of psalms called salvation or history psalms. And there's not very many of these, but they're distinct. Uh, their focus is on a review of the history of God and his saving work uh, amongst his people, especially his deliverance of his people out of Egypt. Um, and so Fee and Stewart write, write this, whole national epics and key historical and religious memories were preserved in poetry. So, so again, just think about that. We live in a day when right, we can pull out our phone and quickly look up anything about anyone and, you know, uh, where we're dependent on in a good way. It's amazing to have access. Uh, and, and a few years back, not too many years back, we had to go to the libraries and pull out encyclopedias and, and look things up and get our history and whatnot. Uh, but the ancients, they preserved it in poetry. And by preserved, Fee and Stuart write, uh, they, they say that because one major advantage of poetry over prose is that it's more readily memorized. That's the whole point of poetry. You can memorize the rhythm and the words that repeat and so on. There's there's this rhyme or meter. There's a balance and, and an overall structure. And so it is relatively regular and orderly. And so once it's learned well, poetry is not as easily forgotten as prose. Okay? And so this makes sense why then God's people would write these psalms of telling what God has done. And they, they would memorize these and they would know these. Psalm 78, Psalm 105 and 6, Psalm 135 and 136. Uh, those those five constitute the salvation history psalms. Uh, a fifth genre or type of psalm is a psalm of celebration and affirmation. And these get broken into even subgroups. Um, some that talk about covenant renewal liturgies where God's people would would, would recite and sing certain psalms like Psalm 50 or Psalm 81 uh, to lead God's people to renew their covenant uh, that, that they had made and that God had made with them. Um, there's also royal psalms where, um, again, in the context of like the, the royal kingdom and kingship in ancient Israel, they would recite uh, how God protected his people and brought stability to the king, to the nation. Related to that um, are enthronement psalms. Uh, these are like psalms that they would sing as the king would come back into Israel to to Jerusalem after traveling. Um, and so, um, you know, there's some some typology going on there that point to Christ, but but they are very specific about the king and and Jerusalem and, and those kinds of things. And so, therefore, even more specific. Within this category are songs of Zion or songs of Jerusalem. And there's a few specific psalms that are just all about the city of Jerusalem and the holy city and so forth. Um, Which again, those can definitely be adapted for use by the church uh, and and for Christian worship. Number six, wisdom psalms. This is where we'll see Psalm 1 uh, today. So there's about maybe eight or nine that fall into this category. Um, And it's there's a... A similarity to the Proverbs. And that's interesting to keep in mind. Some of the Psalms that fall under this category read very much like the book of Proverbs. And then finally, number seven, Psalms or songs of, of trust. And uh, the list that I have calls out 10 in particular that center their attention on the fact that God can be trusted and that even in times of despair, his goodness and care for his people ought to be expressed. Boy, we need that all the time. So uh, there's, there's 10 of those. Um, I don't have them listed for you to look at, but uh, we'll, we'll push that out maybe this week. Here's the point. The, the Psalter is amazing. And, and by the way, this listing, there's, there's others that have maybe an eighth genre and, and they tweak things a little bit, but this is pretty standard. Um, the Psalms are amazing. They're rich and diverse and honest There's some challenging things to interpret, but we will be blessed if we delight in and meditate on the word of God, but hear the Psalter. And we will see that, especially now, finally, as we turn to Psalm 1. so in our time that remains, if you have your Bible, turn to the Psalms, book 1, chapter 1, verse 1. And this psalm uh, divides up into kind of one message of two ways. There, uh, we're going to see, even as I read it, you can, you can look for this and listen for this. Uh, there's going to be a blessing on the righteous, and then punishment on the wicked, and then a summarizing contrast between the two. It's, it's very noticeable, the way this psalm is structured. And you're keeping in mind, this is poetry, it has rhythm, it was meant to be sung, which I won't do but I will read it now. Psalm chapter one, verses one to six. This is the word of the Lord. Blessed is the one who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his or her delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he or she meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is the word of the Lord. One commentator says that the first Psalm Psalm one, it serves as the gateway into the entire book of the Psalms stressing that those who would worship God genuinely must embrace his instruction, his law or, or Torah, his, his covenant instruction. The early church father, Jerome, so this is A.D. 342 to about 420, a long time ago. Jerome, he described Psalm 1 as the preface to the Psalms, as inspired by the Holy Spirit, and he compared it to the great door of the building that is the Psalter. Another more modern New Testament, or excuse me, Old Testament scholar, Trimper Longman, he writes, the Psalms employ the concepts, themes, and terminology of wisdom literature. And thus, it's rightly understood as a wisdom poem, this one. Most notably, like the book of Proverbs, it makes a strict delineation between the righteous and the wicked, connecting the former with great blessing and the latter with dire consequences. And most scholars recognize as well that Psalm one and Psalm two really go together. We won't look at Psalm two this morning, uh, but you can read both Psalms. They're short later, and so both of them serve to open up, to serve as this entryway into uh, the the entire Psalms, and they're positioned there clearly by those that edited the Psalms, the five books on on purpose and and by by putting it this way this, this this psalm that sounds very much like a proverb right the righteous do this, the wicked will suffer this it's it's it 's so black and white, and that 's something a lot of us struggle with in our day well, you know there 's no nuance it 's just one way or the other way but that 's that 's wisdom literature that 's how a lot of the the proverbs are are differentiated there's there 's one way and there's there 's another way um and and that 's what we're sort of forced to with Psalm 1 to think about. And if this is uh, a book of prayers, of songs, it, it serves to say, I mean, think of it almost this way. Like I was thinking this morning as I was doing my morning walk and praying, Psalm 1 could be a psalm to start every day. Like, okay, Lord, today I want to be I want to be the blessed one who doesn't you know, walk in the counsel of the wicked, stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers. We'll talk about those. But, but Lord, today I want to delight in your word and, and be like a tree rooted. Help me today. I, I, we could pray that every day. We, we could pray that corporately every Sunday. God, today as we gather, may we be people that delight in your word. And therefore we, we don't Join the wicked, but we we are the righteous ones that come to you. So, so, it really it fits well as the starting place of all of the psalms, as as an opening prayer as individuals, as an opening prayer for God's people. And again, keep in mind as well, in ancient Near Eastern culture, and again, that's when this was written. God, he was smart when he had the different ones write uh, what we call the Bible, the different books. They. they They were using their world. They were people that had a context and a world around them. And so in ancient Near Eastern wisdom, the prevailing idea was that there were two destinies for people. Those who lived according to the will of the gods, well, they would experience long and fruitful life. And those who uh, didn't live as uh, if there were no gods, their life would come to an early end. And so Psalm 1, speaking of the true God and so on, it, it borrows that general truth tradition that was prevalent in the ancient world. And so again, that very black and white ideas presented. So this wasn't written to us, right? But this is written for us. And so let's consider for a few more minutes this psalm as a start to our series for the next few weeks. And as I've said already, hopefully you will fall in love with these 150 chapters over the course of your life, wherever you're at, and incorporate them into your your time with God. So let's talk about first of the blessing on the righteous. So verses 1 through 3, let me reread. Blessed is the man or woman who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, So this idea of blessed, uh, it's, can be translated happy. Think in the New Testament when Jesus gave the Beatitudes, uh, that word, it was, Beatitude comes from the Latin for the word that means happy. And, and this is the Hebrew version of that. There's, there's another Hebrew word that speaks more of being blessed by God, uh, of, of God, um, uh, you know, Specifically, instilling his favor in in people. This word really speaks about happiness, or the happiness of a person, or a a state of happiness. This is this is what the Queen of Sheba said in First Kings ten, uh, verse eight. Let's see if I can get there. I can't get there. Well, she she spoke of what she beheld, uh, and then it's used twenty six times here in all of the Psalms. Um, to be happy, to be in a state of happiness, um, the happiness of a person. And that's very fascinating to think about. And, and again, just, just be honest with the text in and, and your mind for a minute. Really? Is is it really true that always, always, always the person is happy who doesn't go with the wicked but delights in God's word? Does it always work out like that in real life, in real circumstances? So I told you, don't answer out loud. Just, just think, and hopefully there's a little bit of a. Hmm, I want to say one thing, but hmm, life kind of feels, you know. So again, this is wisdom literature. This is like you find in the proverbs, um, like we even have in our in our day, an apple a day keeps the doctor away. Really, always? No. What's the truth in it? It's that if you eat healthy, generally you're gonna be healthier. Or the early bird gets the worm. Really? Always? Well, the, the general truth is that if you get up early and work hard, you're, you're going to get what you need, as opposed to just being lazy kind of a thing, right? So it's wisdom. And we also, and we'll get to this, we, we have to interpret and read and look at this, not just from the context we're in in this moment, but from what we know to be true of God in the past, and what we believe to be true of God looking into the future. This psalm, these verses, don't mean that for the Christian, life is free from life. I mean, we just heard an hour ago when we had our God moments, some, some real life situations of people <clears throat> going through hard things with family and hard things in their life, but but... God was there. God is at work. And so we, we still experience the real things of life. But to walk in the way of God, according to his word, his instruction, is to live right with our maker. And it does bring happiness in spite of seasons of struggle. Not, not a trivial, flippant happiness. There's a, a happiness that comes from, you know, eating a great meal, uh, drinking one of your favorite beverages, seeing a movie that just, you know. But but a real happiness in the midst of things is what the psalm is speaking to. So, so now notice, you heard me read it a couple times. Notice the parallelism that exists. Notice there's contrast. Walk, stand, sit. And even that, notice the buildup. Blessed is the one who doesn't walk, so you're moving along Uh with, with certain types uh, but, uh, who, or who doesn't stop uh, and stand or get to the place of sitting, right? There's a buildup there with each of those. Uh, there's imagery from creation, like a tree. We heard last week Adam Peacock talk about oaks of righteousness. Uh, if you missed the message, it's online. Uh, I learned a lot about oak trees uh, after last week's message, and we see them all around us, and that was, I think, Adam's point. But oak trees, they have this crest, right? But the root system is... Way bigger. I'll just put it that way. We have parallelism and contrast and uh, buildup and imagery and, and, and chaff, right? The, the tree with deep roots is, is contrasted to chaff that just blows around. It's poetic. It's wisdom literature. And it's, it's got a warning to it. Now, let's talk about this parallelism and the buildup there in verse 1. Uh, these, these phrases, some call these colons, not like you think of like the two dots, okay? Uh, but as it relates to poetry, um, each colon adds to the thought of the first. So there's A, and then what's more, B, and then what's more, C. And so you have someone who walks in the counsel of the wicked, and what's more, they stand in the way of sinner, and what's more, they, they sit in the seat of scoffer. So it's this this poetic buildup, it intensifies Each one is worse. Um, Someone who is wicked uh, in the scriptures isn't quite as bad as a sinner. And, And what our ESV translate as scoffer, it can also be the word mocker. And we'll talk about that word in a moment. Actually, we'll talk about it now. A mocker in the scriptures is the most egregiously evil person, one writer summarizes since they not only sin, but they also turn around and mock the innocent. So so we are being warned, encouraged not to walk with the wicked or, and then stop and stand with other sinners or get to the place where we sit with these, these mockers. To, 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 to listen to this, to sit with a mocker, this is speaking of... Um, both a settling and a real adversarial context. It's it's more settled than to walk and stand because... Um, now you're, you're in one place, right? And in the ancient world, when you sat, it was a, a legal posture. It was a judge who would sit in in judgment, even as they do today. It was the posture of authority and teaching. If you sat down, you, you had a place. In fact, uh, like in John Calvin's day, uh, so 500 years ago, the the pastor would sit and the congregation would stand. I think we should switch to that. Uh, in our day uh, sometime. But, but you see why? Because it was a posture of authority. If you could sit, you, you had a place of authority. So even Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, he gets out on the boat and he sits and he teaches and, and so on. It was a settled position in that regard. But it's also emphatic in that it's adversarial. For not only does this person decide against God, but, but they mock, they jeer and sneer at those who walk against God's ways. And so this this commentator notes that we experience this all the time in our day from the morally liberal and theologically pluralist elite of our society. They, They mock us. Biblical Orthodox Christianity is mocked and we live in a place where we're not worried about the authorities bursting through the doors to stop us, what we face is jeering and, and, and mockery and we could talk about a gazillion examples but I do want to circle back for a moment to the, the disconnected movie that we're going to watch next week this this issue of uh, gender dysphoria and struggle um, if if you say lovingly which you should say that um, that God made male and female, and that that gender is tied to biology. Look out, especially in in the academic world, the, the elite world, the media, and uh, and so on. So we we need to talk about this stuff. We we that our parents need to talk to our kids who who are growing up with friends that not only are struggling, but are making decisions. And we need to help our kids love their friends that are going through this, but understand the truth and that God's word isn't hateful and and bigoted and and things. And so to watch a movie that, that again, tells a powerful story and then talk is necessary. It's hard, though. So a couple weeks ago, I was at our denominational conference, and one of the papers that was written for us as an EFCA church, I want to read part of it here at this point in the message. Um, The EFCA, Evangelical Free Church of America, where we stand in the denomination, denials and affirmations. I'm not going to read the whole thing. Let Let me read part of it. We believe that as an association of churches, we in the EFCA are bound together by the biblical gospel, and we seek to live in the unity which the gospel creates. We believe in practice, quote, in essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, in all things charity. That's a famous quote, and that's one of the mottos of our denomination. We didn't come up with it. It goes back a long way. In essentials unity and non-essentials liberty, in all things charity. In that light we seek to address social movements and cultural trends that can create division among us. Just as Paul the Apostle needed to explain and defend himself and his ministry, 2 Corinthians chapters 10 to 13, we too sense a need to explain the ministry the Lord has entrusted to us. And then they're going to talk about various topics and issues that have come up to the denomination. And so they wrote this statement. It's got something like eight affirmations and and, uh, denials and so on. And, And I want to read one. Again, that connects back to the gender dysphoria transition stuff, the trans issue that we live in. We do not believe that a person's biological sex should be separated from their self-perception as a man or a woman, nor that the body should be altered when it does not conform to that self-perception. So we believe that. I agree with that sentence, and it's based on this book. So we don't believe, I'll read again, that a person's biological sex should be separated from their self-perception as man or woman, nor that the body should be altered when it does not conform to that self-perception. But, but we do believe that some people experience a distressing struggle between these two things, and we must treat those who struggle in this way with love and compassion as we seek to help them with the truth and the power of the gospel toward the wholeness of a biologically sexed identity grounded in God's very good design of creation as male and female. It's a great statement. We, we deny something, but we affirm and we admit that people struggle and people make decisions, and we need to be loving and caring as we seek to help and interact in all of those things. And so again, um, that statement, and it's rooted in the scriptures, is why we want to talk next week about that issue in particular as it relates to that announcement. And this again now gets back to Psalm chapter 1 with the fact that there are mockers, there are scoffers. And the contrast now in verse 2 is the blessing the person who's happy, the person who's blessed, is the one who delights in the law or instruction of the Lord. T- to delight is not merely to comply with, but to-, to love what God commands. And so Christians, they have their attitude toward God changed, Tim Keller writes, from, from one, duty, one of duty to free, loving, self-giving, because of what Jesus did for us on the cross. The longer we walk with the Lord and his spirit forms us, this will be true. We will delight in God's word. That doesn't mean there won't be times of struggle. Back to what I said at the beginning with the Psalms. God's not afraid of our honesty. We're gonna read things in God's word and there's gonna be things that that go against everything we're hearing in the world around us and and, God help me And there might be a time when I don't delight in this, God. But over time, as we learn to trust God and walk with him, we'll be shaped that way. There will be a delight. There will be a delight. And there will still be questions. And it's just like our life is one of ups and downs and twists and turns, like the best roller coaster you can imagine. God's word will be like that in our lives sometimes. But happy is a person whose delight is in the instruction, the law of the Lord. And this isn't just the law, like the 613 commands. No, but but this is the law, the prophets, the whole thing. And, and by the time, of course, for us looking back, the, the words of the apostles and the words of Jesus, to have a delight in the law. And that is that is the opposite. And, and then there's the promise, verse, tre- verse three. And I'm gonna go quickly now. To delight in God's word as opposed to walking in the counsel of the wicked, standing in the way of sinners, sitting with scoffers, to delight in God's word, to meditate on it day and night, all the time, is to be like a tree that's got these roots that go down, like a tree that's planted near near streams of water, that, that has its fruit coming in its season and its leaf doesn't wither. Just think of the perfect setting for a tree. And all that person does, there's prosperity. And just like a tree, a tree doesn't exist for itself, but it produces shade and leaves and fruit for others. So when, when our life is like that, we prosper and we're useful for other people. That's That's the promise. That's the blessing. But then the contrast is, if that's the blessing for the righteous, and I'll define righteous more in a moment, but now you have this punishment again it's a contrast for the wicked verse 4 the wicked and now it's just a summary of the wicked the sinner the scoffer okay the wicked they're not like the blessed happy person who's who's delighting in the law and who's planted deep no the the wicked they're they're like chaff that the wind drives away we've got this smoke bush plant thing outside of our house and it's pretty amazing but it kind of drives me crazy right now cuz all of its whatever i don't wouldn't call them leaves but they just become these balls that just blow everywhere and they're on our porch and you open the door and they come in and they just they're they're that's what i think of when i read about chaff at least i don't see much chaff in my suburb but i see these smoke bush fallings all around my porch the wind drives them away and verse 5 therefore the wicked will not stand in judgment, in the judgment, nor will sinners in the congregation of the righteous. And there's some debate. Is this speaking of like the future judgment? Or is it speaking of now? And there's some ambiguity. And and we can read it just with some narrow lens uh, in terms of when it was written. But we can also back out and understand that, no, the wicked won't stand in the final judgment. They won't. They won't stand in the congregation of the righteous. That's true, coming. But but even maybe now, and, and again, if this was a psalm to be used when God's people gather, um, God's people are, are not to be perfect people. It's not that we, we pretend. None of us are perfectly righteous. But, but, but generally speaking, those who live as wicked sinners, scoffer mockers, like actively, I don't think that's any of you. So there's, again, a contrast between... Who gathers before the Lord. And then the summarizing contrast that verse 6. The Lord knows the way of the righteous. Another way that can be translated is the Lord watches over. He doesn't just know. Of course, he knows. It's not just cognitive, though. He, he watches over the way of the righteous. He, he's got affection and approval for his his people, the righteous. But but the way of the wicked, that they'll perish. So again, it's a contrast. Wisdom literature, right? Pretty black and white. That we might sit here and go, well, two ways. The way of the wicked, the way of the righteous. But who's righteous? Well, of course, there's only been one perfectly righteous person, the Lord Jesus But again, we do have the benefit of reading this in light of the other scriptures. And so look at the screen, Romans 5.19. I'm starting to dabble in Romans even a couple months out. And Romans 5.19 says, For as by one man's disobedience, that's Adam, the many, that's all of us, every person forever, were made sinners. That's where we get the doctrine of original sin. Adam sinned and it brought sin to everyone. So, by one man's obedience, that's Jesus, the many will be made righteous. So, who's the righteous really? Ultimately, it's the one who's been made righteous by the righteous Jesus. So, if you're a Christian this morning, if you're following Jesus, even if it's not perfectly, which no one does, even if you have questions and struggles and doubts and, and you 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 sometimes sin. If you're in Christ, you're righteous because of the Lord Jesus, the righteous one. And so this psalm then becomes a psalm for us. The Lord knows, the Lord watches over, the Lord has affection for those who are righteous because of Jesus. And who are those that are righteous because of Jesus? Well, they're those who delight in the instruction of the Lord and who are blessed and happy and and experience this, this abundant life, you could say. The Christian life, friends, is not about, it's not about becoming something you're not. It's about wicked people, sinners, mockers, becoming righteous because of Jesus, about being brought from death to life, and then living increasingly in light of who we are in Christ. And that brings us to our catechism today. Last week, we talked about how we could be saved and part of that answer was only faith in Jesus. Well, today we ask, and I will ask, and if you would join me in the answer, what is faith in Jesus Christ? And we all said, faith in Jesus Christ is acknowledging the truth of everything that God has revealed in his word, trusting in him, and also receiving and resting on him alone for salvation as he is offered to us in the gospel. And so the Apostle Peter would say in Acts 4 that there's no other name than the Lord Jesus by which we are saved and and made righteous. And so this truth, this psalm, pushes us to one big question. Which way will you choose? Which way? The way of the wicked or the way of the righteous? And if you haven't yet believed on the Lord Jesus I I implore you, choose the way of the righteous, the way of the righteousness of Jesus who will save you as you trust in him. Talk to me about that if, if God's drawing you to him. And for those of us that have been made righteous, the question remains, which way will you choose? Will you daily and hourly choose the way of the blessed person who delights in the Lord's instruction? Many of you will know these final lines from this famous piece of poetry the road not taken by robert frost two roads diverged in a wood and i i took the one less traveled by and that has made all the difference oh, amazing words that's a good poetry good poem would you stand and let's pray and boy i did go long clearly i was on vacation and had a lot to say <laughs> Let's, let's go to the Lord. Father, you are the Lord of the scriptures. And we ask that you not let us be seduced by the wicked and sinner and mockers. God, please don't let us be seduced by the world, either naively going along or by becoming cynical. But would you help us to meditate on your word to the point where we delight in it, regardless of our circumstances. We want to experience this happiness, this blessedness. We want to experience what you're promising to us here in your word. We need you to do that work in us. Thank you for a chance to consider the Psalms over the next few weeks and for this look this morning at Psalm 1. As I prayed earlier again, Lord, We love you, we need you, and we can't live without you. We need you to do this work in us. In Jesus' name, amen.